the greatest book in the whole wide world, the Bible. That's what we'll be talking about today. It's interesting when Jason uh, asked me to share this morning, this is a, a journey that I've been on uh, for the past few years of understanding the importance of his word. We've got a five-year-old, a three-year-old, a one-year-old. I think last year for us was the, the first time we haven't, in, in our marriage, and mine and Katie's marriage, where we haven't changed jobs or had a baby throughout the course of our marriage. So we're kind of starting to settle, and God's been teaching this, um, the importance of his word, and working that in my heart. So good morning, Highland. Good morning. Thanks, uh, Jason and the elders, for letting me share uh, today. I jump up here every month and, and try to talk through a communion intro, but I don't usually take a moment to say thank you and I love you to my church family here. Your support and love over the years has meant so much, and you truly have been the body of Christ. It's been neat to see Highland grow. I met my wife here, and we've had kids, and um, thank you uh, for being family. I greatly appreciate the opportunity to serve by the grace of God here with you. We're in a series today discussing Psalm 119, and Tim shared it earlier. The, the plea was, Lord, don't give up on me. And I feel like I mentioned this, this what we're talking about today, understanding the word, that has been something that has resonated in my life a lot over the last few years, is Lord, don't get up on me. And then he's driving me back to the word. As things get crazy and things get busy, it's, uh, it's been interesting. I hope you're studying Psalm 119, reading it, listening to it, transcribing it, maybe, as I highly recommend. Writing it out gives you a new perspective and a new way to discover his word. Let me just say this, if you've never written out a whole book of the Bible by hand, and Psalms 119 is uh, just a chapter, but it's longer than many books, it's a great experience, and in Psalms in particular, it gives you a really good way to chew on the language. You can kind of do the whole check signature thing. My handwriting's messy, so I can't even read it if I write too fast. But, and fly through it. But being purposeful about writing the scripture will allow it to sink deeply into your heart. And in this psalm in particular, it was not really just a stream of consciousness put down on paper. It wasn't a letter that was written. In fact, like many psalms, it was a song meant to be sung. But even more than that, this psalm uh, was very artistic. Each section... There are 22 sections of eight verses each in Psalm 119. Each section corresponds to a Hebrew letter of the alphabet. And the one we're in today, which is Psalm 119, 25 through 32, is titled Daleth. I don't know if that's how you say it, but that's how I'm going to say it. Each verse begins with the letter in the with that letter in the alphabet. So there's constraints. It's kind of you know first eight verses in our uh, alphabet would begin with A. Second eight verses, every verse would begin with B, etc. So the author was attempting to create something very beautiful and artistic in their language while getting across a very strong message. How many of you have ever been to a poetry slam? Yeah, a few? I was looking for um, interesting videos to try to convey you know, how, how strong the language was, and I ran across a bunch of poetry slam videos, many of which would be inappropriate to share here. And, um, but it's interesting. You know, we, get, we get that idea that language is important. Words spoken are important. And so the author was actually taking the opportunity to really craft some interesting artistic language. It was an Israelite poetry slam, so to speak. And I want to give some context here. Psalm 119 is the longest psalm, and it's a celebration of the Torah. The Torah was essentially God's law given to the Hebrew people, and it consisted of the first five books in your Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. 
Those books comprised the law given to the Israelites, and they started with the history of creation, early history, Noah, all the way through their delivery from Egypt and setting up of the tabernacle, upon which they were given God's laws to govern how they lived. And, this, and the interesting part is that all of it, from history to the law, it points to God, the greatness of who he is, and ultimately his plan to give life. We'll get more on this in a moment, but just, just think about that just for a moment. The longest chapter in the Bible is essentially a love story for God's law or his ways. The longest chapter in the Bible, Psalm 119, is a love story for God's law. I don't know that that has a whole lot of reference in our culture. That should be our, our first flag, that something about the psalmist is different. There's something there that he understands that, that maybe we don't. So take note. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for loving us. Thank you for the opportunity to, to delve into your word. Thank you for the psalmist, whoever this was, that wrote this celebration of your word. I pray that you would open our hearts to understand what you have to say. I pray that you would call us to encounter your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So here's what we'll be looking at today. We're going to look at what happens, and that's what this section of scripture is. It's a picture of what happens when somebody fully encounters God's word. We'll look at the result. We'll ask the question, what is God's word? What happens when we first encounter his word or when we just start? What's our natural response? And then we'll talk about how do we approach his word and what is our response. So let's read. If you have your Bible or electronic device, please turn to Psalms 119, 25 through 32. It'll also be up here on the screen. My soul clings to the dust. Give me life according to your word. When I told of my ways, you answered me. Teach me your statutes. Make me understand the way of your precepts, and I will meditate on your wondrous works. My soul melts away for sorrow. Strengthen me according to your word. Put false ways far from me, and graciously teach me your law. I have chosen the way of faithfulness. I set your rules before me. I cling to your testimonies, O Lord. Let me not be put to shame. I will run in the way of your commandments when you enlarge my heart. Father God, allow us to, please enlarge our hearts. Allow this to sink deeply into our soul today. In Jesus' name, amen. It's kind of difficult to get this on the first reading. I mean, to fully grasp what he's saying. Again, this was a very, 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 very thoughtful piece of creative literature biblical literature that was written here, so one reading probably won't do it. We'll walk through the verses one by one here in a moment and examine them. But a couple of observations first. This begins with the state of our soul and ends with a desire for a change in heart. While we're talking about God's law, this is really examining the heart. This is a heart thing that we'll be talking about today. Secondly, there were seven different words in Psalms 119 used to describe God's ways. All of those are used in in the verses that we're looking at today. I've got a chart. We'll show them up here on the screen. Um, I mentioned this is a praise of the Torah. The Torah is the first five books of the Bible, but literally in Hebrew, it actually means the law, uh, his instruction. And I'm not going to read through all of these. One of the the most interesting ones is precepts. Uh, We don't use that word a lot, but that literally means what God has appointed to be done. And actually, we don't see that that word in Scripture in the Old Testament outside 
of Psalms. So it's used a lot in Psalms to talk about what God has appointed to be done. So lots of different words for God's ways here. Let's go ahead and walk through the verses. Verse 25. My soul clings to dust. Give me life according to your word. The psalmist here clearly acknowledges that the deepest part of him, his soul, clings to dust. Death. You know, from dust I have come, from dust you will return. That sort of thing. And realizes that God can give life through his word. In the New Living Translation, this is translated, instead of life according to your word, it is literally revive me by your word, which is our, uh, kind of the title of our talk today. When I hear of revive, I think of all the corny movies where somebody does CPR for like 10 seconds and the person wakes up gasping, life has returned. And it usually indicates an amazing plot twist. And it usually happens very quickly. But that whole idea, that picture of I'm revived, life has returned, like Becca was talking about with the kids. Verse 26, when I told of my ways, you answered me. Teach me your statutes. There's a back and forth here. I spoke my ways, the Lord answered, and my response was, please teach. What was the answer? What did the Lord say? We don't see that, but we see that the psalmist's response to God's answer is to beg for an understanding of his ways. So there's clearly something that God approaches us with. When we talk about our ways, God responds, and there's clearly something in his answer that is desirable. Verse 27, Make me understand the way of your precepts, and I will meditate on your wondrous works. Make me understand, and I will meditate on your ways. I want to soak it in. I want it in my head. I want it in my heart. We don't use the word meditate a lot, but that's what it means. Soak it in. Work it deeply. Verse 28, My soul melts away for sorrow. Strengthen me according to your word. There's a response to understanding God's ways. We see that in in a period of Israel's history, they had forgotten all of his laws. In fact, his law had been forgotten. And a king pulls it out and reads it in front of the entire assembly. And there's a, a weeping and a mourning and a despairing, a time of despairing. So we see that all throughout Scripture. When our approach to God is so good and my ways are not, literally my ways are dust, and God's ways are good and perfect, and the response is sorrow and grieving. But this is critical. I want you to see this. We don't stay there. We don't stay in the sorrow and grieving. When Israel rediscovered his word, they, they were grieving. But then God spoke. He literally had somebody stand up and prophesy to speak his words of encouragement. And we see that in the psalm. He doesn't stay there. He says, my soul melts away for sorrow. Strengthen me according to your word. Verse 29, put false ways far from me and graciously teach me your law. This is a calling to counteract what is natural in my heart. How many times are we pulled into things that are not life-giving? Our false ways, our sins, our natural tendencies don't lead us to life. When I'm struggling and I'm tired on Monday mornings and I get up, my natural tendency is I want some coffee. I get through the day and I'm struggling. My natural tendency is I want some coffee. I get home. I'm exhausted. I want some coffee or pizza. You know, there's not a part of me that says, life is hard right now. I really want a nice green salad. I want some tofu. It's going to be really healthy and nourishing. Maybe that's your natural inclination. Good for you. Praise God. That is not mine. I want a burger. I want some pizza. I want some coffee. 
we don't, we don't naturally want things that nourish us. We don't naturally go to things when we're in need that are going to build us up and to nourish us. And the same thing happens in our, in our lives. We are naturally, our false ways are naturally drawn to what can I do? Uh, what's money or lust or lies? We're naturally drawn to those things. Katie was telling me about a video she saw, and I couldn't find it online or otherwise I'd share it, about these two-year-olds that um, apparently they're given a banana and they want to eat it, and then the banana breaks, and it's kind of funny because the whole world, it's like the whole world stopped. And I've seen this with my son who's three. Um, you know, he handed him the banana, and I, I peeled it the wrong way one time. He wanted to peel it, and no, he freaked out. He's screaming, and I didn't understand that he had this way that he wanted to do things, and he's starting to understand that it's got to be his way. And so that's what we experience with our ways sometimes. Our false ways are not naturally nourishing, and yet we want it that way. And sometimes even when we engage God, we say, God, I want, I want it my way. I want to engage you on my terms. But we'll see here that the scripture is not about us, it's about him. It is his life. Verse 30, I have chosen the ways of faithfulness. I set your rules before me. There's a choosing here. Up to this point, there's been a back and forth as we've gone through the scripture. But he chooses in verse 30. Remember that. Verse 31, I cling to your testimonies, O Lord. Let me not be put to shame. Again, reaffirming choosing, asking that this be honored. But take note here. We're a few verses later, and this is the same word that is used in the beginning. So verse 25, my soul clings to dust. Now I cling to your testimonies. Something has happened here to the psalmist as he's encountered God's word. In verse 32, which is my favorite, I will run in the way of your commandments when you enlarge my heart. If you look at verse 30 and 31, I have chosen, I set your rules before I cling, all are words that convey choice and attitude, not, not necessarily a strong doing. And this is critical for us today. There's a commitment here in verse 32, I will run. It's a stronger word that conveys doing. This is an action word. It's a doing, going, yes. But there's a condition statement here because the psalmist knows he cannot make that deep of a commitment he can't make the action happen. He can't run on his own. So he's, he's putting it, when you enlarge my heart. Again, God does it. Not the psalmist, not him. So, we've kind of walked through. We've seen the psalmist fully encounter God's word. He's gone from dust to I will run. What is the result? What is the result when we fully encounter God's word? In short... We move from clinging to dust, our ways, to delighting in his word. This is the result when we breathe in God's word. Jason Meyer says it this way. These connections help us see that now God breathes his breath of life into a book, not just directly into us. We breathe in that breath of life when we read the Bible. It seems almost counterintuitive, but when we wrestle with a brokenness that causes us to not even desire the Bible, the solution is to turn to the Bible. The solution is not a vote of confidence in ourselves, as if anything, as if our reading skills could ever overcome our fallen state, but in the Word itself as God's life-giving breath. Paul says it to Timothy this way, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. And many times we stop, but the best part's yet to come. 
that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Complete, that's a, it's a word that conveys wholeness, perfection. So now let me ask the question. We've seen what the result of fully encountering God's word is. We move from clinging to dust, to our, which is our own ways, to breathing in the life of God's word. But now let me ask the question, what is God's word? We know that the psalmist had the Torah, just the first five books of the Bible. We've got the whole Bible. God's word is the Bible, right? Easy answer. But if we look at Psalm 119, we see that it's more than just written words. He's actually talking about God's ways. There was not a separation between reading and doing. He doesn't say, teach me your statutes, O Lord, so that I can think about them and then not do them and do whatever I want. He says, teach me your statutes, and later I have chosen, and I will run. The words of the Torah were not empty. They were life-giving ways of God. This is how the Israelites saw them, life-giving ways of God. And Israelites were not raised to read and observe the book from afar. They were raised reading it, memorizing, and doing God's ways. A few weeks ago, we celebrated Passover. This was one of God's ways laid out in the Word, designed to point to God, to remember how he gave them life in Egypt and foreshadow how he would give them eternal life through Jesus on the cross. It was a picture of God's ways. They also were raised with the idea that just doing God's ways alone wasn't enough as rule keepers. They went to the tabernacle or the temple to offer sacrifices to atone for their sins. So they followed his ways, but to atone for their, sacrifice, to atone for their sins, they still needed a sacrifice a substitute to take the place of their punishment. The animals that they sacrificed couldn't save them. But God put this in place as one of his ways to point them forward to the Messiah, Jesus, who would save through his sacrifice, through his death on the cross. So to the point, what is God's word? It is more than just text on a page. It is his ways. And the psalmist here was not simply speaking of hearing about God's ways. He was speaking of doing God's ways. And this, just isn't, this isn't just an Old Testament thing. We see this in the New Testament as well. James 1, 22 through 25. Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect wall the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts. He will be blessed in his doing. So we see in the New Testament that God's ways, the perfect law that gives liberty that James speaks about, gives freedom and life. They're not constraining. They bring true life. I still remember um, when I went through college, I took uh, one of my electives was New Testament literature. And I remember meeting a man who knew the New Testament. He actually knew the Bible better than anybody that I'd ever met. He memorized it. He knew how it worked. He knew how it put together. But he didn't actually know God. He didn't actually follow the Bible. He didn't actually place his faith in Jesus and attempt to live like the Bible was the perfect guide for life. He knew it. He knew it with his head. But he didn't know it like the Israelites knew it. It is the doing that roots his word deeply in our hearts, that roots God's word deeply in our hearts. 
So now just imagine for a moment that you've been raised as an Israelite, believing that God's ways are good and perfect, giving life and freedom, that his word tells us his ways give life. His word is life. Even if you don't agree with that, imagine for a moment you do, and you've been raised, his word is life. Then you read from the Apostle John in John 1. Flintstones, I think you know this one. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him not anything that was made, not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And later in verse 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So here's the point. God's word gives life. If we see it as the psalmist saw it, it's not just words on a page. It is life itself. It is the breath of life. I had this really uh, cool analogy I was hoping to use where I'd get a jar of dust and you know, put it in my hand and blow it. You know, Dust doesn't withstand the breath of life. But it rained last night, and all I had was mud in my driveway. So you'll just have to think about that. Um, So God's word is not just words. It is his ways. It is him. Encountering God's word is soaking it in, hearing it, reading it, writing it. But it's also doing it. God's word and the perfection of his ways is personified in Jesus Christ. Everything he did, everything he said, all the way through his death on the cross, all of it is to give life everlasting and today. Jesus is the word personified. Let me read John 6. This is a great example. Jesus feeds the 5,000 and then they come after him and are essentially seeking another miracle of multiplying food. That was a good trick, Jesus. Get, feed us again is essentially where they were coming from. He says in, in John six twenty seven. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man, Jesus, will give to you. And later, in verse 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And in verse 63, much later, he says, It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. God's word is life. Jesus was the word personified. So what happens when we first encounter his word? Great, we've seen what happened when the psalmist encountered his word, but what happens when we do it? Let's go back to Psalm 119, 28. We see that upon encountering his word, the psalmist's soul melts away with sorrow, and he calls for strength. When we encounter God's word, we see the pointlessness of our ways, the dust, and we are forced to rely on him for strength. The same thing happens when we meet Jesus, the word personified. He is so beautiful. He is so good. His ways are perfect that there's a sorrow. But if you'll notice, the author of the psalm started with, my ways are dust. There was an inherent built-in humility. The word is life. It points us to God, and it points us to Jesus. In verse 28, sorrow gives way to strengthen me by your word, a yearning for his word. So we must engage in humility to be broken to the point of yearning. In verse 25, he says, my ways are dust. In verse 28, he says, I am sorrowful. There's a humility there with which he approaches the word. 
His response is, strengthen me by your word. There's a yearning. The very next verse, verse 30, says, I've chosen the ways of faithfulness. There's a trust placed here. So yearning, strengthen me, gives way to trust. Verse 31, I will run in the ways of your commandments when you enlarge my heart. And actually, that's verse 32. The last piece is most critical, when you, God, enlarge my heart. We cannot run in his commandments unless he enlarges my heart. There is nothing we can do. There are no tricks you can place in in place that are going to make you a better person. Just like we can't save us, just like we need Jesus to die on the cross, we need God to enlarge our hearts to even begin to encounter his word. The first, you know, when I, I heard enlarge my heart, the first thing I thought of was the first time I saw the Grinch who stole Christmas. It was made in like 1966, you know, the Dr. Seuss story, and he's hanging on the edge of the cliff after he's stolen all the presents, and he hears the Who's singing, and the Dr. Seuss says, well, in Whoville, they say that the Grinch's small heart grew three sizes that day. And it's a kind of a goofy picture, but it's what I think about, enlarging our hearts. God does that for us when we desire to encounter his word, when we approach it with humility. So humility gives way to yearning, yearning gives way to trust, and trust gives way to dependence. There's nothing we do in all of this. Yearning, trust, dependence will characterize the heart that is being revived by God. So what is our response to the call to be revived by his word? It's pretty straightforward. You can't be revived by his word. You can't be given life according to his word without making the decision to seek his word. Jesus says in Matthew 7 to his disciples, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. This is God's promise to us. Anybody ever read the Chronicles of Narnia? Yes? No? Maybe so? Yes? There's movies if you haven't, you know, if you're not a reader. Um, in the third book or movie, whichever you prefer, uh, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, the three of the, the kids who are the main characters in that book are standing, they're, they're not in Narnia yet, they're standing in some house looking at a picture, and it's a picture of the waves, and there's a, sa- a ship sailing on the waves. And I think it's, it's uh, Lucy looks at the picture and she says, look, this is such an amazing picture. If you look really closely, you can almost see that the waves, it almost looks like the waves are moving. And her cousin uh, kind of makes fun of her. He was the um, snotty little kid in the book. Um, but I love how C.S. Lewis gives us this picture because as the children look into the picture, they actually see that the waves start to move. And then water begins pouring out of the picture. It floods the whole room. They go underwater and they surface and suddenly they're in Narnia and that ship has become real and they're fished out of the sea. So, so ask, seek, knock. Look intently at the word and you will see it begin to take life. It will take life in your heart. Just like that picture, you see the waves start to move and then it floods over you. This is what happens when we encounter God's word. At times, they become more than words on a page. It soaks into our heart. It changes us. It gives us life. It overwhelms us. And we glimpse God. This is a promise. So will you seek to encounter his word? 
Will you read it? Will you memorize it? Will you do it? Or maybe better said, will you plant his word, his life in your heart? I don't know what this exactly means for you, but it doesn't matter where you are. The call is the same. Will you choose? We see in Psalms, verse 30, I have chosen. There's a time when it turns, and there's a time for us where we hear about the word, we see the power that it is, we see that it gives us life and that we can see God itself. So will you choose? Maybe you don't know Christ. Maybe this whole Christian thing is new to you and you're just checking this out. The best way to check it out is to read his word. Nothing we can do to convince you. God is the one. If he is real, if he is alive, then you will encounter him in his word. If you haven't yet, I recommend starting with John. I'll be over here during, to the right during the, the next song and would love to talk and pray with you. Band, you can come on up. Maybe you have come to know Christ. Maybe you know him. You've put your faith in him. You realize that your ways are less and his ways are better. And so you've said, Jesus, I trust you. But perhaps you haven't really encountered his word lately. Life is busy and his word stays closed and you do not experience the fullness of life intended for you by a God who loves you more than anything. There is nothing else to do than to simply begin. There's no trick to it. I don't know how and where and when, but if you seek with humility to be revived by his word, he will answer. That is a promise. There's no trick to it. You can begin anywhere. Start in Genesis or Joshua and hear the stories of God's love and faithfulness across generations. Or start in the Gospels and see Jesus. Or read the letters from the apostles on a life lived in in the light of Christ. Maybe you read the word often, perhaps every day. Good. Seek to plant it deeply in your heart. Memorize it, study it, write it, treasure it. The word of God is life itself and it will transform you. This is a promise. As usual, we'll have some of our elders and gel leaders over here to the left for prayer. And the front is open if you need a place to physically kneel and respond, seek God during this as we continue in worship. Highland, may we be revived by his word. May we see life according to his word. May we know that his word is the perfect guide for us. May we admire it so strongly that we work and we pray to have it shape our character and conduct. And by the grace of God, may it shape us so that he is glorified in a great way that this city cannot deny. Let's pray. God, these are bold claims. To say that we can encounter your word and that we can, get, we can have life according to your word. Father, it begins with Jesus. You sent him as a sacrifice for our sins. And Father, we we depend on him for eternal life. But Father, sometimes we get distracted. And Lord, I know that I, I am here. I get distracted and I get busy and life gets busy with kids and work and all the other things I want to do. And and I find myself going from day to day to day without actually reading, without actually breathing in your word. So, Father, help me. Help us. Father, revive us by your word. We see in your scripture 
that a life breathing in your word is a life changed, is a life transformed, is a life that encounters and sees God. And Father, you've promised to us that if we ask, you will do it, that you will revive us. So Father, we ask, we, we ask that you will revive us by your word. I pray that you will work deeply in, in each one of us a desire to seek you. And Father, I pray most of all that you will help us depend on you. Father, that you will enlarge our hearts, that you will free our hearts so that we can encounter you, Father. Thank you for your blessings. May you be glorified in everything we say and do. May we breathe your life in this word. In Jesus' name, amen.